Hi everyone. Unfortunately, we were not able to save the live recording of our lecture, but we asked Dr. Stephen Moore to make a secondary recording. So it's a little shorter, but we hope you enjoy it. Hebrews 2, 13, quoting Isaiah 8, 18 says this, Behold, I and the children God has given me. John 10, 27 to 30, Christ says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The doctrine of definite atonement holds that from the good pleasure of the Father, Christ was appointed and given as a redeemer and head, not to all men, but to a certain number, namely the elect. This adapts a definitional statement made uh, amongst um, Francis Turretin's um, uh, comments on the doctrine from the good pleasure of the Father, Christ was appointed and given as a redeemer and head, not to all men, but to a certain number, namely the elect. So the issue we're thinking about concerns the purpose of the Father in delivering up his Son and the intent of Christ in dying. His death had particular reference to the elect, a certain number, not all. Now, as we consider this, we need to note there was a diversity of views on this issue among the Reformed and the Reformed Orthodox and the Reformed have expressed in a number of different ways the truth that Christ saves the elect to the uttermost. In particular, we ought to recall the common ground. What is not at issue is the value and sufficiency of Christ's death. Of course it was sufficient for all. His death was of infinite value. And an important dictum in the, in the discussions uh, of this doctrine in the 16th, 17th century is, is the dictum that Christ's death was sufficient for all, but effective for some. So it's not a discussion of the efficacy and application either. Of course, it extended to believers only. Nor is it an issue whether the death of Christ brings many blessings to the non-elect. Of course it does. The death of Christ underpins universal proclamation of the gospel. Uh, it abolishes uh, idols and idolatry. It restrains evil. Uh, of course it does. So these things are common ground uh, amongst and within Reformed discussions of the doctrine. Let's turn then to expound the doctrine itself. Where does it fit in? It doesn't sit isolated within Christian theology, but it's treated uh, most commonly within discussions and statements of Christ's office as mediator which is important for us because it means that as we expound and apply the doctrine, we are presenting Christ as mediator, especially Christ as priest. Come with me then to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5 to 18. Now, in selecting one passage to, to spend a significant amount of our time in, um, this is not a statement about method, um, how we should proceed, but rather as a matter of... Um, it's pragmatic in our limited time together that we come to a scriptural passage in which um, a number of the ideas um, connected to this doctrine of definite atonement, they occur together and in close company. And so I'm going to 
move through um, relatively crisply the points A to H uh, on your handout. I'll make remarks and observations and there's an opportunity in our question time to pick up on any of those and press those further. First of all, I'm going to read Hebrews 2 verses 5 to 18. I'm going to read from the ESV. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honour, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honour because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So reads the word of God. Firstly, A. The Father's purpose in sending Jesus was to bring many sons to glory. So as the full import of Psalm 8 is unfolded, we see that it was not the purpose of the Father to bring one son to glory, but, verse 10, many sons to glory. And this is the Father's purpose. B. This accounts for the priestly work of Jesus. So notice the different aspects of his priestly work, taking to himself a human nature, Verse 14, the suffering of death, verses 9 to 10, delivering those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery, helping the offspring of Abraham, making propitiation for the sins of the people, verse 17, and then helping those who are tempted, verse 18. See, this priestly work of Jesus, all these um, works are all one. They belong together to the priestly work of Christ. D. The objects of this redemption are described using a variety of different terms. Notice the variety through here. So verse 10, many sons. Verse 11, those who are sanctified. 
were brothers of Jesus, verse 11. Uh, then taken up as my brothers in verse 12. Or the children God has given me, verse 13. Or the children again, verse 14. Those who through fear of death, uh, namely the children just mentioned, verse 16, offspring of Abraham. And then back to brothers of Jesus in verse 17. And then Jesus is a propitiation for the sins of the people. The people. And then at the end of 17, and these are those who are being tempted. Um, verse 18. E. All these terms describing the objects of Christ's redemption, they refer to the same group of people. They are different terms expressing and naming the elect. So as we follow the thread of those different terms describing the objects of redemption, we see um, that they're, they're all connected and refer to the same group of people. F. These terms that we've just seen, they all point to lend themselves to being understood um, in relation to a discriminating or exclusive love. Look at the categories we've got. Sons, brothers, children, offspring of Abraham, God's people. They are ideas, names, categories, relational categories that, um, that entail discriminating or exclusive love. And to this we would add um, lots more of the vocabulary of Scripture uh, in describing the same group, the church, Christ's mystical body. Um, the counterpoint to the bridegroom, the bride, and to the shepherd, the sheep. Terms pointing to a discriminating or, or exclusive love. Taking this a step further, G, the personal pronouns and these expressions are definite. Just notice the personal pronoun, my brothers, verse 12. Or the children God has given me, end of verse 13. There's a definiteness. H. Underlying all this is that the Father has given the elect to Christ his Son. This presupposes a prior giving of the elect from the Father to the Son. Behold, I and the children God has given me. Or John 10, 27 to 30. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So it presupposes a prior giving and by the Father to the Son. And then we, we see that a little bit further in John's Gospel, in John 17, with Jesus' high priestly prayer, that he as it were, entrust them back to the Father for safekeeping in his hands. The Father gives them to the Son, and the Son, um, in this prayer, entrusts them back to the Father. So underlying all this is that the Father has given the elect to Christ his Son. 
Okay, do pick up on any of those in questions um, uh, afterwards and uh, we can unfold those a little further. I want us to think for a moment about the all or universal texts. Because of course we know there are scriptural passages in which um, scripture appears to speak of a universal um, aspect to redemption. References to all or everyone or the world. And indeed we had one reference, Hebrews 2.9. So you might have said, well, in all the terms that you listed describing the objects of redemption, what about 2 verse 9, which says, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone, for all. And indeed Hebrews 2.9 is one of the uh, one of the all or, or universal texts that um, uh, people will often point to uh, in arguing against um, the doctrine of definite atonement as we've expressed it and defined it so far. There's obviously a number of other references. Uh, just a few examples are, are there on our sheets. 1 Timothy 2, 4 to 6 with chapter 4, verse 10 in the same letter. Titus 2, verses 11 to 14. John 3, 16. John 12, 32. And uh, a number of other verses um, besides. Now, it's not our task tonight to do close work and close exegesis on these verses. Um, and I, I would refer you to um, some of the bibliography um, in, in the footnotes to, to follow this up in more detail. But it is important for us to recognize reading strategies as we come to verses like this. And we ought to realize that um, language of all, so universal language, all or everyone, um, uh, can of course have different meanings. So it doesn't necessarily mean all without exception. Um, but we see that in a number of verses where the language of all or everyone is used, um, it's qualified or conditioned in some way in context. And an important principle is that, that it could mean all kinds of people. We need to be aware and sensitive that it can mean uh, not all people without exception, but all kinds of people, all types of people. And there's a very um, sound reason for that as well, that um, at this redemptive historical moment in which a number of these references are, are, are being written in the Gospels, the apostolic writings, and so we're, um, or the, the apostolic teaching, and so we are dealing with a redemptive historical moment at which the, the doors have been flung open and uh, the mystery of the Gospel has been revealed that Gentiles are also co-heirs um, with the Jews in Christ, or co-heirs uh, of the promise. And so it's natural in that context, and it is the case in a number of references, that um, it's that allness, that universality, which in redemptive historical terms, there's a, uh, there's a newness to it. It's been made manifest and uncovered and revealed uh, in a way that um, then finds uh, expression in the universal proclamation and offering of the gospel to all kinds of people, it's to Jew and Gentile, to people from every tribe and nation and tongue. And we can see in Hebrews 2 verse 9, because we've gone through and seen a number of the other terms and references to the objects of Christ's redemption, that our understanding of everyone in 2.9 has to be conditioned by 
those terms, which we've seen are by their nature definite, um, that they are appropriately understood as referring to discriminatory or exclusive or particular definite love, special love, and a particular group of people variously described, but um, nevertheless naming um, the people of God. And so we ought to coordinate um, and condition our understanding of, of everyone of all um, at the end of verse 9 in those terms. Again, we may want to pick up on particular references uh, or on our reading strategies for those texts and when we come to questions. I want to move us on to consider for a few moments now applying this doctrine. What does this doctrine mean? What does it look like when we apply the doctrine of definite atonement? And first of all, Christ is our great saviour. At the heart of the doctrine is the truth that Christ saves his people. His work is not to make salvation possible. It's not to enable salvation. It's to accomplish it. Christ saves his people and he does so to the uttermost. Christ, our great saviour. Secondly, Christ, our priest, comforts and helps us. Notice how in a chapter so dominated by the priesthood of Christ and his priestly work, Notice the end to which it's ordered that he would help as our sympathetic high priest, the merciful and high priest and faithful high priest in the service of God, that he helps the offspring of Abraham. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Christ our priest comforts and helps us. And so when we think of how he has by the Father's good pleasure, being appointed as Redeemer and Head for the elect, we're to take immediate and special comfort in his priestly service and his priestly work. He comforts and helps us. Three, Christ with the Father and the Spirit owns us as his own. There is great comfort in the particularity of his love. That it is definite. I'm not ashamed to call them brothers. Christ owns us. I will tell of your name to my brothers. Behold, I and the children God has given me. Number four, this, this love which holds us, we have seen it is bound up with the mutual love of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And so as we think about this um, particular and special love with which um, uh, the Father has, has purposed and Christ has intended um, as he um, has died for the elect, we see that we're, we're caught up in a love um, of the Father to the Son and the Spirit. So again, we saw that in John's gospel, didn't we? That the Father had given us to the Son. He'd given the elect to the Son. And the Son entrusts them back to the Father. And no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one, says Jesus. Next, this doctrine grounds Christian assurance. Now, because sometimes the opposite is said, notice this quote. This is taken from Sinclair Ferguson's chapter in the, uh, the edited volume that's, that's referenced there, um, edited by, by David and Jonathan Gibson, From Heaven He Came and Sought Her. 
um, looking at definite atonement from a variety of different perspectives, historical, biblical, theological, and pastoral, and I commend that to you. This is a quote from Sinclair Ferguson's chapter, which is addressing the very question of assurance and how the doctrine of definite atonement grounds Christian assurance. Here's uh, what Sinclair Ferguson says. Not only is definite atonement able to sustain the doctrine of Christian assurance, it in fact grounds it. Christ's propitiation of God's wrath at Calvary, Romans 3.25, ensures that we will not, cannot receive God's wrath on the last day. Romans 5, 9 to 11. In other words, it's unthinkable, it's impossible that God requires double payment for sins. Christ has paid for the sins of the elect. He has made propitiation for the sins of the people. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He will not require a double payment. And so the Christian is assured. Ferguson goes on to quote um, these words from Augustus Toplady's hymn, From Whence This Fear and Unbelief, on just this point of how there will be no double payment. If thou hast my discharge procured and freely in my room endured the whole of wrath divine, payment God cannot twice demand, first at my bleeding surety's hand and then again at mine. Finally, this doctrine spurs gospel proclamation. So despite what's sometimes said about uh, the, the doctrine of definite atonement and its relationship to the universal proclamation of the gospel, um, this doctrine, it is a spur to preach the gospel to all. It spurs universal gospel proclamation. Christ has ransomed a people from every tribe and nation and tongue. We offer Christ to be received by faith, but we offer him to all indiscriminately. And so this is a doctrine that, that underpins, that spurs, and that encourages and gives great confidence to us as we hold out this gospel to all uh, indiscriminately. And as we offer Christ, we recall that, uh, and these in the words again of um, Sinclair Ferguson in that same chapter, the least and weakest faith receives the same strong Christ. He saves completely those who come to God by him. This is Christ, our great Saviour.